Welcome to Knowledge Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about reducing the risk of becoming a victim of elder financial abuse, a resolution for the entire year is Paul Greenwood. Paul headed up the Elder Abuse Prosecution Unit at the San Diego DA's office. In 1999, California Lawyer Magazine named Paul as one of their top 20 lawyers of the year in recognition of his pioneering efforts to pursue justice on behalf of senior citizens. He has prosecuted over 750 felony cases of both physical, sexual, emotional, and financial elder abuse. Paul retired in March of 2018 from the San Diego DA's office to concentrate on sharing lessons learned from his elder abuse prosecutions with a wider audience. Paul now spends much of his post-retirement time consulting on elder abuse cases and providing trainings to law enforcement and adult protective service agencies across the country and internationally. How are you doing today, Paul? Very good. Good to see you again, Jason. You as well. Thank you. Looking forward to our conversation. Before we get started, for those joining us for the live webinar, if you have any questions, time permitting, we'll do everything in our power to get your questions answered. The presented content does not provide or constitute medical, financial, or legal advice. The content is for information purposes only. Viewing or listening to the content does not constitute a physician-patient, dentist-patient, fiduciary-client, or attorney-client relationship. 22 years in the San Diego DA's office heading up the Elder Abuse Prosecution Unit, now a well-known consultant, both nationally and internationally. How did you get into this? Well, it's been a, a tremendous ride. Um, I joined the DA's office um, in 1993, and after three years doing your regular crimes, you know, your drugs, your burglaries, your robberies, um, I was called in to the office and was told by the elected DA, we have a major problem here because I've, he'd just been told by Adult Protective Services, which is the county social services agency, uh, that our office was ignoring a huge escalating crime called elder abuse. And he'd never heard of it. I'd never heard of it. But he told APS that uh, as a remedy, he would create a brand new unit. And so for whatever reason, he decided I was the guy. And that's led me into this amazing journey for the next, well, it was 22 years, as you say, in the DA's office. But since then, um, again, I'm hopefully applying the experiences that I learned in the courtroom, battling these insidious cases now in the bigger arena and trying to help others uh, avoid becoming a victim or helping others resolve cases that have ended up in a litigation. Yeah. So, Paul, I'd like to start off with estate planning process. How early do you recommend somebody start the estate planning process as a way to mitigate future elder issues? You know, it's never too early. Um, and what I'm seeing as a result is I'm now spending my time assisting some attorneys and their clients try to unravel the messes that unfortunately have been left by people who, for whatever reason, did not create an estate plan prior to their demise. And so anyone in their late 20s, 30s, 40s should be seriously considering going to an estate planning attorney. Again, I would advise against do, your, do it yourself because there are so many loopholes that none of us really are aware of uh, and barriers. And I think what the pandemic has shown all of us is that we are simply sometimes a cough or a sneeze away from a very serious illness that could end up with our own demise. Uh, 
So I really feel that we've got to take this seriously and just, and it's not that expensive. Um, my wife and I went to an, a lawyer for estate planning. We came out of there under $2,000 with what we consider to be a very secure plan. And the great thing is it's flexible. As your circumstances change, you can amend. And, and that's the beauty of a, a estate plan. Yeah. So what can our aging population do, Paul, to protect their credit? Well, this is something that is serious because identity theft is one of the largest uh, escalating crimes out there. And so for a start to protect your credit, we need to know what's going on with our own credit. So and there's several things you could do. One of them is, of course, you could sign up with one of these credit protection agencies. It's not 100% guaranteed, but it's, it's, it's something. Or you should at least do your own credit searches uh, through those credit bureaus uh, at least three or four times a year. And you should also, if you're in a position to do this, consider freezing your credit. If you're um, thinking that you don't need a loan, if you're not gonna need a new mortgage or a car loan, then absolutely seriously, uh, freeze your credit because there is a good protection from doing that. So talking about protection, so if somebody is a victim of ID theft, what do they do, Paul? Well, immediately um, they do need to obviously contact every uh, credit card company, go to their bank, their credit union, um, make sure you've, you've put a stop on everything that you, you have credit with or potential credit, make a police report very quickly and if the police agency push back on you, don't accept that. You need a police report. You need a police number. You may need to show that to somebody. Uh, and I would then um, look online and you can contact a, a national identity theft resource mm -hmm. center. It's called the Identity Theft Resource Center. They're very, very helpful. Um, in fact, they're based out of San Diego. And I know some of the folks who run that center, they do a great job. And you should contact them because they can give you further advice on, on what to do. Yeah. So obviously, Paul, started doing this and you said 1993 as far as the elder abuse financial, the elder abuse unit. So you've probably seen all types of scams. What types of scams are you seeing now that are most common? Well, you know, these crooks, basically, they just vary the scam based upon the current circumstances. So, for example, if a tragedy occurs, say um, a, a terrible accident occurs with firefighters being killed in the line of duty, going in to rescue people and they get killed. Within 24 hours, there's going to be phone calls from scammers representing, they say, the firefighters fund and asking you for a pledge or a donation. And of course, with the pandemic, what are we seeing right now? We're seeing people online or calling people uh, promoting, uh, we, you can get the vaccine through us, but we need certain details from you, including, of course, your bank details. But one of the hottest scams right now is the romance scam. And, and there are reasons for that because uh, the scammers are targeting persons who have either lost a loved one after a long relationship through death or through a divorce, or they are targeting people who simply are lonely. And they, they get their victims through these traditional websites, but then once they've made that contact through a traditional website, 
they will encourage the victim to come off the website and engage in personal communications away from the website. And of course, these crooks are stealing genuine people's identity. And a lot of these crooks are using ex-military type profiles. So the victims think they are basically being romanced by a true hero who spent 25 years in the military. The, the ironic thing, uh, Jason, is that the victims never meet their lovers online. And of course, the uh, scammers will tell them, oh, I've, I've hit upon a hard time. Can you send me money? And so as soon as there's a request for money, you know it's a scam. I remember last time we spoke, Paul, you were talking about your neighbor um, across the street who had who was being scammed and it was umpteen thousands of dollars. Yeah, it was $23,000. And she actually pulled it out of the bank in order to go to the uh, supermarket to buy gift cards. She was the victim of the computer uh, hijacking scam, which is, again, prevalent. And just before she left, literally across the street, as you said, to go and buy those gift cards, she just decided, maybe I should talk to Paul, because she knew. And in fact, she's been to one of my seminars. She's actually sat there and heard me talk about these scams. But she was hoodwinked enough to at least go and withdraw all the money. And Jason, I think I mentioned it before, I was really upset with her bank for allowing an 89-year-old lady in broad daylight to walk out with $23,000 in cash. It's inexcusable. Are there some things you can talk about at the home that uh, an aging person can think about what they need to protect at the home? Great question. And let's start on the outside. Let's start with the mailbox. You know, one of the biggest cultural shocks that I faced coming from Southern England to Southern California was the standalone mailbox outside the house. Honestly, Jason, it took me several minutes to absorb the idea that my precious mail that was being delivered by the United States Postal Service was being put in a tin can outside my house so that my local crook and could saunter along while I was down in court and pick out my mail without being deterred. Frankly, I don't know who came up with this idea of unlocked mailboxes, but it's a, it's a silly idea. And I absolutely believe that the person who invented the red flag that goes onto their mailbox was a crook. Because that is the only thing that helps the crook. They know that there is some outgoing mail that is waiting to be picked up. And typically, it's from a house-bound elderly person who has put in that mailbox an envelope with a check in it, payable to the utility company. And that's how a lot of identity theft occurs. So mailbox theft is huge. And I'm asking everybody who listens to the podcast or is seeing this webinar, to if you know uh, in your street you have unlocked mailboxes you've got to change that secondly uh wherever possible and if you can afford it always get a video camera at your front door uh, or, uh angled down to the porch because many of us are shopping online many of us are having parcels and boxes delivered to our homes and I don't know what it's like for you, Jason, but our delivery guys are a little lazy now. They just sling it onto the doorstep and run. They don't even press the doorbell anymore. So you don't know when the box is there unless you have a camera that alerts you to that. I've, we have this camera trained 
in two places onto the front door. I've had solicitors walking down the path, seeing the green light flashing from the camera, and they turn around and leave because they don't want to be identified. That is in some ways a deterrent. I would also advise people uh, getting a notice to stick outside their front door saying, uh, and the notice you can buy at any um, stationer's office, these premises are being surveilled by video camera. Now, you may not have a video camera, but there's no law against lying about it. Uh, at least it's a deterrent to some people who otherwise might wanting to case your house as a potential break-in. Then moving inside the house, the biggest uh, um, advice I can give people is lock up your jewelry. You know, of all the 22 years of prosecuting these cases, uh, jewelry was the number one item that was being stolen from older adults. And I can just give you very quickly a list of the people who stole the jewelry. It was the drug addicted son or grandson who would come into the house, knew exactly where the jury was and, and steal it. It was the, uh, the caregiver who was on felony drug probation that the family didn't realize that the caregiver had a drug problem or a criminal record. It was the contractor who came in uh, doing some work. In one of my cases, it was the carpet cleaner. Not only did he suck the carpets up, he would he literally stuck the vacuum into the jury box and sucked the jury down the vacuum uh, um. into his truck. Um, the fourth type of suspect is, is the opportunistic predator who will knock on the door, claim to be somebody from an agency that needs to check your water pressure or your plumbing because there's a problem in the area, and then distracts you and goes in the bedroom and it's uncanny. These crooks know exactly where we keep our jewelry. I don't know how they do it, but they know. And you know, Jason, finally, one lesson where you know your jewelry's been stolen is if your pillow slip off your pillow is missing. The burglars always take the pillow slip off the pillow and stuff the jewelry into the pillow slip. That's oh, wow. the key. Yeah, they do that all the time. Wow. Um, so I want to stay with the home, Paul. So if somebody is looking to have some home improvement work done, what do you recommend they do, whether it's getting estimates, maybe calling the Better Business Bureau? What do you recommend that, um, that our aging population do? Yeah, uh, several things. Again, this is huge because I, I so much contractor fraud out there. First of all, get three, at least three estimates. Mm -hmm. But secondly, um, do your research on the quote contractor. Now in most states, you have to be licensed in order to be a plumber or an electrician or a roofer. Some states, apparently not, and I don't understand why not, but most states, there is a regulated body that look, supervises and issues licenses. So contact that agency, they're all online. In California, it's the California State License Board, CSLB, and you can type in the name of the contract to see if there are any violations, any complaints, uh, any rev revocation of licenses. Also, I do uh, recommend contacting your local Better Business Bureau. You know, Jason, I found when I was prosecuting, they were like the CIA. They know a lot locally. And I would, I would call them up and say, hey, um, I've got a report here, a complaint against Joe Bloggs. Um, what do you know about Joe Bloggs, who's uh, 
contracting as a roofer and they would type it into their database. Oh, we've got seven complaints against Joe Bloggs, primarily from older citizens. So right there, you know that this guy is, is a crook. Um, and then I would always insist on certain things. Everything in writing, only pay by check. And never pay, and this is the guideline that California uses, but I think every state should use, never pay more than 10% or $1,000, whichever is less, as a down payment before the work is commenced. And then once the work starts, keep a camera handy and photograph it, but also photograph the vehicle in which the contractor comes. Take a photograph of the license plate, just in case on day two, the contractor never shows up and disappears with your money. Yeah. So I want to move to caregivers, Paul. If somebody is looking to hire a caregiver, what steps do you recommend they take? This, can, this is probably one of the biggest decisions we'll ever make for a family member, for a loved one. And what I suggest straight away is do not hire through word of mouth or through um, the, the non-conventional way. Just yesterday, Jason, I had a call from a gentleman up in Lo the Los Angeles area, and I agreed to do a, a Zoom call with him and his family. Um, they've been sued by a caregiver who they trusted, and she's now turn the tables on them and is claiming all kinds of things which they are vehemently uh, denying. And they can't believe that somebody that they thought they trusted is now trying to take thousands and thousands of dollars from them. So all I say is go through a professional, bonded, insured, licensed caregiver agency. And people tell me all the time, but Mr. Greenwood, that they are so expensive. I get it, yes, but you get what you pay for in life, do you not? And if you try to short circuit it and pay somebody off the streets under the table, you are asking for major problems. And what you should do is interview two or three caregiving companies. And one of the first questions you should ask the current company is, what background checks do you do on your employees? Mm -hmm. How can I be assured that the person that you send me is not currently on drug felony probation. Because I can tell you this, in so many cases, even through bonded agencies, the person I was prosecuting was one of their employees and they were on felony probation. And the only good thing about that is that you, the, the family can now recover from that bonded insured agency uh, for the damages that has been caused by the employee. But certainly you should do that. But then once you've done that, a couple more things. You should let people know that there's been a change in circumstances. And the first person you should tell is your parents, bank or credit union. And you should say, you should write a letter and say, Dear Sir Amanda, I want you to know that my mother uh, now has a full-time caregiver in the home. As a result, I want you to pay special attention to my mother's bank or credit union account. And if you see a sudden change in um, the, the activity on the account, I want you to make an immediate call to Adult Protective Services. 
That's a letter that should be sent by every family member who hires a caregiver to go into an elderly person's home. Yeah. So if somebody's thinking about relocating or to an assisted living facility, um, what things should they consider? What they should do, again, choose three or four in the area that you think within your budget is something you, you might all be able to afford. You should then make unannounced visits to those facilities at various times of day and night. Don't just make an appointment with the administrator for 11 a.m. because everything is going to look great. The coffee is going to be on. The activities are going on. Uh, people are preparing the lunch. Everything smells good. You need to go at 11 o'clock at night and see what it's really like when there's not many people around. Uh, Try and talk to other residents, family members who are visiting. Obviously, right now, that's not possible with a pandemic. But as and when the restrictions are lifted, talk to, uh, say, to a family member that you see in another room. Can I just talk to you? What's your experience with this facility? And try to get close personal feedback from family members who, who see it. And, and then um, when you uh, decide on a place, make sure that you visit often, but not at the same time. Uh, make the staff guess when you're coming. Because I tell you, in the cases that I prosecuted of assisted living, the people who became victims, sadly, were people who never got a visitor. Wow. What a shift, Paul, to a law enforcement question. Is elder financial abuse a civil or criminal <laughs> well unfortunately a lot of police officers would like you to believe that it's primarily civil rather than criminal and uh, for 22 years i had this ongoing dialogue with our local police and sheriff's departments and as kindly as i could put it this is what i would say to them you are trained to put handcuffs on people. You are trained to um, calm down a suspect in the middle of the street. You are trained to perform a hot stop on a vehicle that has just fragrantly gone through a, a red light. But what you're not trained to do is tell a family member that this is, quote, just a civil matter. And so I would encourage police departments to take a report, gather the basic facts, and then put that through the local prosecutor's office for further analysis. Because the times that I ultimately ended up prosecuting a case, which had originally been rejected by the police as a civil matter, was too often. And the only way I would find out about these rejected cases were typically because a family member would, in frustration, eventually call my office and get to speak to me. And that's how we would hear about it. Or I'd hear about it on the news because family members would get upset and then they would tell their story to the media who often would be very happy to hear these stories. So the bottom line is it could be civil. It 
could be criminal, it could be both. But the only person really trained to make that call is not a police officer, it's a lawyer in a prosecutor's office who's had enough training and experience to know the difference. And unfortunately, Jason, while we are speaking, there are people all over this country who are making a call or going into a police station to make a report. And unfortunately, today, they are going to get no help because somebody is telling them it's a civil matter. We've got to change the whole policy of the philosophy of police departments not to make that call. Yeah. So, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about the pandemic. So, obviously, we're unprecedented times. What have you seen since you retired to the time now as far as elder abuse, financial elder abuse specifically? I, number one, I've seen, because I've stayed in touch with my former office on a very intimate basis with my uh, the person who took over my role. And what I've seen is a huge impact on the criminal justice system. Obviously, um, with shutdowns and lockdowns in a lot of states, especially here in California, uh, a lot of courts have not been able to function in a typical normal fashion. Mm -hmm. As a result, hundreds, if not thousands of cases are backlogged. As a result, anybody today in San Diego County or in California in general, who is arrested on a non-violent charge, such as elder financial exploitation, typically is not going to be taken to the um, police station and held overnight and given a massive amount of bail. They may well be issued a citation to appear in court in three months' time. Now, the problem with that, Jason, is that they are free right now for the next three months to go and commit further crimes of a financial exploitation nature. No one's looking after them, no one's supervising them on bail conditions. And that is very, very scary. Also, by the time it ever gets to court, it could be from six to 12 months from today. You are dealing with a victim who may be 95. You've got issues of memory. You've got issues of whether that 95-year-old will be alive in 12 months time in order to come into court to testify. So there's a lot of ramifications that the pandemic has caused for criminal justice. And I think we won't know the extent of the damage that the pandemic has caused to victims of crime for two to three or four years. There's going to be a huge knock-on effect. But also, on a more personal level, there is more isolation going on. People are more um, reliant upon their computers, upon their telephones. And as a result, the scammers and the crooks out there are taking full advantage of that fact. Um, they are able to use the pandemic as a, as a leverage to get to communicate with people who typically otherwise would not be using the computer or the telephone to such an extent. Yeah. What advice do you have, Paul, if you have a, an aging parent that lives across the country or, you know, a couple hours from a family member, what would you tell that family member to kind of be aware of, to be thinking about, maybe to be a little more proactive when it comes to their, their parent? 
And, you know, Jason, I had this exact uh, problem myself because my mother, um, who I lost her last year, age 96, um, was 6,000 miles away, but living on her own, especially after my late father died. What I did was I uh, bought her a mini iPad and gave her one very brief tutorial. She got it. And so every single day for six years, my wife and I FaceTimed with my mother every single day, typically at the same time. But on weekends, she gave me a pass. Um, it wasn't until 9 a.m. instead of 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. And that way I was able to not only um, visually see her, but I was able to find out what her routine was. Has anything unusual happened today? The major problem, Jason, is that adult children are not clued into their elderly parents' day-to-day yep. -day affairs. And it's only after something bad happens to the uh, aging parent that these adult children become invested in their parents' life because they see their inheritance evaporating. And I'm saying, no, that's not the way to go. You need to be proactive. And if you can't physically get there, um, have somebody who's a trusted uh, person Go visit with them if they can, or at least talk to them outside the front door uh, and to make sure that you have this communication set up with an iPad or with at least a daily phone call. It's absolutely essential. How can people find you? Well, the best way is email, and I'll, I'll, I'll read it out for those of you on the podcast. It's pgreendda at gmail.com, which is uh, P for Paul, my name, G. R-E-E-N, which is the first few letters of my last name, and then DDA, which stands for Deputy District Attorney, because even though I'm retired, I still like to have a link with that career. So it's pgreendda at gmail.com. When I first saw your email, I'm like, wonder what this means. Now I know. Thank you. Pro yes. that's, that's, that's been solved. Thank you, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> you bet. Well, you that's know, so unfortunately, far. some people, Jason, you, you, they put their birthdays uh, as part of their email, I, I say, don't do that because you're giving away part of your private information to the crooks. Oh, bad. Or you could just put your social security number. I'm sure that's, there's yeah, no harm in that either, right? Yeah. yeah. I'm joking, of course. We're joking. Um, so as far as Knowledgeable Aging, um, all of our archive webinars are found on our website, knowledgeableaging.com. You can also uh, check out our YouTube page, type in Knowledgeable Aging. I encourage you to subscribe. We update the YouTube page four to five times per week. If podcasts are your thing, Recommend going to Spotify, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.